Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Excited for the big game? I'm guessing most of you are probably like me, uh, that you could care less about the teams in the game, but you enjoy the environment around it and eating junk food and lots of chips and queso and everything that can be fried, fried. Um, That's the best part about today. Um, But I am curious, um, you know, probably most of us in here are like, okay, I'm cheering for this team because, and how almost all of us will fill in the blank to that today is based on your degree of hatred of the Patriots, right? Like either I really hate the Patriots or I only slightly or a little bit hate them. Um, That is probably going to determine how you cheer today. I am curious, is there anyone here who is like just straight up a legit Falcons or Patriots fan, regardless of whether they were ever in the Super Bowl today? Like straight up legit fans. Okay, so I was right. We're all going to judge based on how much we hate the Patriots today. So um, it should be a good game if you're into football. If you're not, then you can just enjoy the junk food that the rest of us will eat while we're watching. So uh, I want to welcome you this morning. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor here at Element Church and excited that you're here with us uh, as we enter into week four of our series called Imago Dei. Uh, Imago Dei being Latin for image of God. And the Bible teaches that you and I All humans were created in God's image, and there are certain implications for that. Uh, When you walked in, you were handed what we call a worship guide, and as we do with most series uh, that we're teaching through, uh, there's a schedule of events, and you can, uh, schedule of events, schedule of topics, and uh, you can kind of see where we're going, you can kind of see some of the implications uh, of us bearing God's image, and today uh, will be no different. We're going to talk more about it, and today might be a little more personal. You know, in in some of the other aspects we've talked about, we've talked about the beauty of race, the sanctity of life, the necessity of missions, and and really talked about how, how the implications for bearing God's image affect how we view and interact with others. Today will be a little more internally focused about What does it mean for me practically that the Bible teaches that I'm made in the image of God? If you've been with us over the last several weeks, uh, you know that we've had uh, kind of a key theme verse uh, during this series, and we're going to take a look at it uh, just to kind of set us on the right stage this morning. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse uh, 26, Uh, it says 24, I actually skipped down to 26. Uh, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You know, at Element Church, um, we love the Bible. The Bible is central to who we are and what we do. As a matter of fact, at Element Church, um, we kind of have this tagline. Uh, You'll see it on our logo uh, uh, quite often uh, where it says Element Church and it says simple biblical, real. Um, and we want to be simple in, in how we approach ministry. We don't want to um, be full of so many activities that we miss the heart of what God has really called us to. We want to be biblical. We want to be founded on God's truth, and we want to be real. We want to be tangible um, to people in our community and all around us so that they can get a tangible understanding of who Christ is and what he means in, in our lives. Um, we love the Bible because the Bible serves as an anchor for us 
in the midst of shifting cultural seas and currents um, that change from day to day, week to week, administration to administration, generation to generation, as things around us change, uh, we have an anchor to hold us steady to know what matters and what uh, is truth and, and where, we can ground, gra- where we can ground our lives. Um, and, and it's one of the reasons that we cherish the Bible. As the Bible teaches us that we were all created in God's image, um, it speaks certain qualities about God. That God is powerful, certainly. Uh, that He's able to create everything out of nothing. Uh, that He's transcendent. That God is somehow bigger and different and beyond just what you and I see and experience on an everyday level. That He's creative. Um, that that all the beauty that we see around us and the diversity is a part of his creativity. That, that there is a certain purpose and intent to creation. That it wasn't an accident, which means you weren't an accident, which means the image of God that you bear is not an accident. And not only is it not an accident, but if God put it there on purpose, that means he has a purpose for you. And that's why we love the Bible and, and founded this church based on the Bible and, and all of our teachings and, and tried to form our lives based on the truths of Scripture because it serves as an anchor so that when we wonder where are we going, what matters, we know that God has a purpose and an intent for us. And part of that understanding comes from the fact that God has created you and I on purpose in His image. Um, today, I want us to talk a little, about, a little bit about the implications of bearing the image of God. And we're going to jump into Mark chapter 12. Uh, and if you want to go there with me, maybe you brought a Bible, maybe you want to use one that's in the seat. you got your uh, phone or your tablet, you're welcome to open up. It'll also be on the screen for us to help us find it uh, much easier that way. If you don't have a Bible or you don't like the one you, you do have, um, we say this regularly, and I hope you know that we mean it, these Bibles that are in your seats are our gift to you. We would love for you to take them home. If you need a Bible, something that, you know, maybe you've, you have an old King James that was, you know, uh, something that was translated in the, in the 1600s, it's a little bit hard to read. Uh, this one may be easier, and, and we would encourage you to take that one with you. And so uh, let's start in, in Mark chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 13, and it would help if I was on the right page. There we go. Uh, And it says this. So we're going to read a few verses and we're going to stop for a minute. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, I'll, I'll explain this as we go. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So let's give you some context. Um, a group of religious leaders have sent something that they called the Pharisees, all right, which are the religious elite of the day, uh, and some Herodians. That's probably a, a term that you don't hear a lot or are familiar with. Um, this Herodians represent uh, a certain class of the government. Um, they were kind of they were Jewish by ethnicity and religion. But they were in the Romans' pocketbooks. They were in Caesar's back pocket. They were more concerned with pleasing Caesar and making money than they were really and honestly and probably pleasing God and doing what was right. And so they're kind of these half-religious leaders, half-political leaders uh, that ruled over the people of the day. 
And they come to trap Jesus. Um, they're looking to set him up. And uh, you can just, you can tell, even if the Bible hadn't told you, hey, to trap him in his talk there in verse 13, just the way they approach him probably tells you that they're going to trap him. Like when they come to him and say, for we know, you know, you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Um, you know, you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. This is like when your daughter comes and sits into your lap and she's like, Daddy, I love you. You're the best daddy in the whole world. And you're like, I love the compliment, but what are you about to ask for? Right? Like, like it's kind of that. Like They are buttering him up, trying to lay on these lavish because they're really trying to test him and they're hoping that they can put a veil of, of sincerity and care and, and honor and respect in front of it. Um, to say, oh, oh, this is what we want to do. But, but let's boil this down. What is it that they're really asking, and how is it a trap for Jesus? Well, let's back up a little bit and, and think through maybe the last nine centuries of history previous to this moment um, to give us some context. If you don't like history, you'll just have to bear with me. I'm the one with the microphone, so I get to do what I want. Um, so let's back up and talk a little history. So the Jewish people have been in the land that we now refer to as Israel and Palestine um, for, for quite a while. Uh, they start to go through some turmoil. That land had been a one portion of a promise that God had given to those people. Um, the land, inheriting that land and possessing that land was just a part of a, of, of a promise and a blessing that he gave to these people. But there were conditions attached to it about being obedient and worshipful of the one true God, uh, if they wanted to retain those blessings. Well, they chose not to. Uh, and so as part of God um, reaching out to these people through prophets, like guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah, people that you may have heard of in the Bible, um, says, if you will return to me and honor me and obey me and worship me, then, then you'll continue to in- keep this blessing, one of which was the land. If you don't, I'll send other nations to come take it away from you. And Israel kind of went through this period of, oh yeah, we're sorry, we'll do better. And then they they didn't. And uh, So in 722 BC, a group of people called the Assyrians, the Assyrian Empire, comes and conquers and captures um, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, the northern part of this nation. Uh, And many of the people are killed. And those who aren't killed, many of them are dragged off into slavery. The southern tribes, the two that are remaining, are like, oh man, we better get our act together, otherwise it'll happen to us. They kind of maintained good for a little while, but in 586 BC, a group of people called the Babylonians came and conquered the southern tribes. Jerusalem, the city, the capital city, fell in 586 BC. Again, most of them, many of them were killed. Uh, Those who weren't killed, almost all of them were taken to Babylon as slaves. So when you start reading and looking through the Old Testament, what you got to recognize when you start reading the prophets is understanding where all these prophets fit into place. It'll help you make sense of the Old Testament when you know that like Jeremiah, for example, is a prophet who he is he is trying to warn the people before the Babylonians come, and then he continues talking about what God is doing and why he's doing it after Jerusalem has fell. So when you start reading books like Jeremiah and Prophets, if you'll look, most of your Bibles probably have a little introduction before each book that will kind of explain some of these things to you, kind of helps make sense of all of it. So here we are, almost all of the Israelites who haven't been killed are now enslaved in Babylon. Um, in 539 BC, 
a group of people called the Persians, conquer the Babylonians. So when you conquer another group in the ancient world, you inherit everything that was theirs. Their property, their money, their people, their slaves. Every empire handles that differently. Um, The Persians, comparatively to the other empires of the ancient Near East, are relatively generous um, and choose not to kill all of these Israelite slaves. When they take over the Babylon Empire, the Babylonian Empire, they're like, well, we'll just make them our slaves. And, uh, but they were fairly generous and actually let a remnant of the Israelites go back to their home in Jerusalem to rebuild their lives. So then you get Old Testament books um, like Ezra, where a guy named Zerubbabel comes back and starts rebuilding the temple. Ezra comes back and becomes the first priest. You get stories like uh, Nehemiah, who come back and rebuild the, the, the walls around Jerusalem. You get stories like Esther, um, who is an Israelite slave who, according to the Bible, was about the best-looking woman in the world. So good that one of the Persian kings was like, oh, I like that Israelite. Um, And so ends up marrying her, and she helps to save and preserve the Israelite people and convinces this new Persian king, don't kill my people, um, because if you're going to you know, declare all the Israelites should be killed, it'll be your own wife included. And, And so she helps to save her people. So... The Persians are now in charge. Um, In about 300 B.C., um, some people that we all know of called the Greeks um, and led by Alexander the Great defeat the Persians. Um, A little bit later, Alexander the Great dies not long after. And then there's this half-Egyptian, half-Greek empire um, called the Ptolemy Empire. And, uh, And they, or the Ptolemy dynasty, and they now conquer and take over and then about 200 bc there's this half syrian half greek empire called the seleucids they then take over and you get a you do get at about 168 you get about a hundred year period where the jews sort of rule themselves but not really but kind of and then in 63 bc the romans take over so i said all that to say this for the last 800 years from this point backwards for the last 800 years the israelites have pretty much been under the thumb and the rule of other people. Either legit slaves or, for all practical purposes, slaves. For almost 800 years, they've either not lived in their own land or they've lived under their own land and had to serve another nation, had to serve another king or emperor. For almost 800 years. And they're thinking back, didn't God promise us this land? Isn't this land supposed to be us, ours? Aren't we supposed to rule ourselves? That's the situation they're thinking. So they come to Jesus with a question, part of it legitimate, because there was this debate going on between many Jews. You had people like the Pharisees who were the religious elite who said, we should never pay taxes to Caesar. The only thing that our money will do is will help him afford to build more pagan temples and will help him afford a Roman army who is stationed here to oppress us. We should never pay taxes to him because he'll only use it to oppress us and build more pagan temples. And you can understand why they would have a problem with paying taxes. Then you had people like the Herodians who were half religious, half political leaders who said, no, 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 no. 
the reason we don't own our own land and rule ourselves is because we were disobedient. Don't you remember when God warned us and we didn't listen? And this is a part of our punishment. Therefore, paying taxes is a part of that punishment. The answer is not to uh, start a rebellion. The answer is not to quit paying taxes. And you know what happens then. Caesar will come and destroy and kill us all. The answer is return back to God. Start worshiping him again. Let God overthrow the Romans and give us our land back. But in the meantime, we should pay taxes. Now, the reason they're asking Jesus this is because it's a trick. If Jesus answers, yes, you should pay taxes, then, then they can all write him off as he's not really loyal to the Jewish people. He's not really loyal to the Jewish God. He's not really our person. He's not our man. Let's go tell everybody that Jesus is a fraud and they'll quit following him. Or if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, then they'll just march right down to the street to the Herodian palace where a guy at the current time named Pontius Pilate lives and just tell him, hey, this prophet, he's now telling all the crowd and all the people not to pay taxes. And they'll just get Pontius Pilate to kill him. So it doesn't matter how Jesus answers the question, it's a trap. They can trap him any way he responds. And here's how he responds. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Jesus said, hey, go get me a coin. This is um, a replica denarius that I, that I have. He says, Who's, whose image is on it? What do you see on there? Caesar's. And his response is, rather than answering yes, pay taxes, no, pay taxes, don't pay taxes, he says, why don't you give Caesar what belongs to him and give God what belongs to him. Now the implication, what he's suggesting is wherever you find Caesar's image, that belongs to Caesar. Wherever you find God's image, that belongs to God. And so this has huge ramifications for what we're talking about in this series. Where you find God's image, that's what belongs to God. So when we talk about the implications of God creating us, we talked about earlier, the power, the transcendence, the creativity, the purpose, the intent. What we're saying is if, if we bear God's image and we're a part of his intentional creation, if he had a purpose for creating us and a purpose for us, Who's the one that gets the right to speak that into our lives? Who's the one who has the right to set standards for us or um, to, tell, to speak truth into us? Jesus would say, well, God does because you bear his image. You belong to him. Anybody ever play the game of spades? Card game spades? You know it? So I have not played this in a long time. I used to play this a lot in high school. Um, whenever we were on road trips, bus trips, you know, whether it's for sports, 
you know, in high school or uh, going on trips in the youth group, whatever, uh, we played spades all the time. Um, if you don't know the game, I'll give you just a few details just so this will make sense. Uh, there's a lot more to the game that I'm not going to explain. Um, but the game of spades is generally played with four people, all right? And you have teams. So person number one and three are on a team, and person two and four are on a team. So what happens is everybody gets 13 cards, all right? And then you look through your cards, and you and your teammate uh, have to determine. You can't tell each other what you have because uh, your other team's sitting there too. You have to communicate with each other and figure out how many games do you think you'll win. You have to actually predict that, and then the point system goes off how accurate you are. and it, that, that gets outside of what we're going to talk about today. Um, but the premise of the game uh, goes like this, that, that whoever plays the highest ranking card of a particular suit wins that round, and you're trying to figure out how many rounds you're going, going to win. Um, so it, it would go something, something, like, uh, something like this. So we'll say person number one uh, plays uh, a two of diamonds, Okay. Obviously, you play two of diamonds, you don't expect to win, right? That's as low as it gets. So let's say person number two uh, plays a six of diamonds, okay? So person number two is now in the lead. Um, We'll say person number three plays the ten of diamonds. So now person three uh, is now in the lead. So it now comes to person four, right? So let's say that, uh, let's say person four has two aces, they have to choose what they want to do. So one is, let's say they have a four. They could play the four knowing they'll lose. Player three is going to win this hand. Um, But maybe that's okay. Part of it's strategy and knowing how many are going to end up winning and all that. uh, Or they could play the ace and they could win. Now the downside of playing the ace to win is what if next round person number three plays a king? Right, you would have been able to beat him, uh, and that would have been a that would sting. If you play a king and you end up losing, that usually hurts. Uh, so, person four has a decision to make about what they want to do. Um, so that's how the game of spades works. Um, but the one unique rule about this game is, no matter the ranking of the cards, or regardless of what suit they're in. A spade always trumps. So even if there had been an ace of diamonds played, even if person four plays the six of spades, they win this hand because a a spade, no matter where it ranks, always beats any other card in any other suit. All right? Um, So your spade is always your trump card. And so you can, that's, that's where the game just takes on a whole new dimension. Um, so that's how the game of spades works. In essence, in a lot of ways, Jesus is talking sort of about this idea of what matters most, what's most important, who gets the trump card. You and I, all, we all face difficult decisions in our lives. When it comes to how we're going to live, what we're going to do. Sometimes you're facing a decision, and 
you're confronted with what you really want to do. It just comes natural. What you really crave and desire. Then there's the option of what culture says you should do or what you can do. What, what's right, what's permissible, what's expected. Then maybe there's another card at play of what you feel obligated to do. Maybe it's different than what you want to do. Maybe it's even different a little bit of what society says you should do, but you feel some sort of guilt or natural inclination about what you should do, what, what you must do, what you're obligated to do. And then there's what God says. And what you have to decide is who gets to be the trump card in your life. If you bear God's image, if you belong to Him, if He and He alone has the, one, has the right to your life, because He created you on purpose, for a purpose, in His image, what implication does that have for your life? When you face a challenging decision, which card will be the trump card for you? Which one will, will represent what you want? Which one will represent what society wants? Which one will represent what you feel obligated to? And which one will represent what God says? And we're in church, right? So we all know the right answer, right? We're like, yeah, God gets to be the trump card. But what about when it stings? You know, these religious leaders were asking about taxes, but they really weren't. Part of it was, I mean, who likes to pay taxes, right? Nobody. But it was bigger for them. This was a religious issue. It was a moral issue. It was a political issue. When you, when you come up to a challenging situation, who will be your trump card? Who gets to make that decision for you? Because you have to decide now. You don't get to wait till the moment. If you don't decide now, if you wait till the moment arises, the situation arises, you've already made your choice. I, do you remember being in, in younger, a teenager, and adults talking about that? Like, if you don't decide now if you're going to say no to drugs, you're going to say no to this or this. If you don't decide now, you've really essentially already made your decision. And if there's any of us in the group, and I am, and I include myself, who came up to those situations with substances in, in our teenage years in high school, that decision ended up getting made for us because we hadn't really made it ahead of time. Who gets the trump card? We all know the right answer. We all know the religious answer, the church answer, what we're supposed to say. But don't think about the person next to you. Don't think about a certain... Right now, looking in your own heart, who, who gets to play that trump card in your life? Who gets to play the role of the spades? Is it, is it really about you and what you want? 
And just so long as what you want is in line with God, we're all good. Or is it about what culture says? What they say you should be or can be or how you should act or where you should go with your life? Is it what you feel obligated to or is, are you going to allow God to have that ultimate standard, that ultimate trump card? That when he speaks truth, it trumps everything else in your life. What you want, what you're told, what you feel. We're not going to go in the te- into the text today because of time. But in Romans chapter 1, we get, a, we get a picture of what happens when people reject God's fingerprint on their life or this world. When, when God's image is available to them and they choose to reject it because they would rather follow something else, that something else gets the trump card, God talks about what that looks like. And you can read Romans chapter 1 uh, for yourself later. There were two big issues in Romans chapter 1, and I'm just going to use these as examples. One of them was worship. That as people began to ignore God's fingerprint, as they hadn't decided who was going to get the trump card, that their worship began to shift from the creator to the created. And that people began giving their lives to that which was not God. Jay talked about worship earlier today. That singing, giving our voice is just one small piece of worship. But that really worship is offering all of our lives. We referenced Romans chapter 12, 1 last week. Jay just mentioned it earlier. Paul says there, therefore, Brothers, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. That's what worship is, offering all of you. And God says, when people begin ignoring my fingerprints, when they begin ignoring my image and the implications of it, when people don't decide who gets the trump card, it changes your worship. You begin worshiping that which is not God. Rather than worshiping the creator, you worship created things. Some of you are going, I don't worship idols. I don't worship Buddha statues or or anything like that. So I'm not worshiping any created things. But you are. You're, You're worshiping a created economic system. You're worshiping a postmodern, relativist, individualistic worldview. You're you're worshiping created things. It may not be something tangible, or maybe it is. Maybe for you it is tangible. And it's not about singing songs to these things. It's about giving your lives to them. And God says when we begin to ignore His image, and when He no longer serves as our trump card, it changes our worship. And then Paul gives another example as well in Romans chapter 1. That what happens when you begin to ignore his image and you decide that he doesn't necessarily get the trump card, it changes your sexuality. It changes the way you relate to other men and women. 
that you begin to say, well, God gets my trump card until my feelings are different, or until what I want is different, or until what culture says is different. Paul makes two examples, your worship and your sexuality, as examples of what happens when you decide God doesn't get the trump card of my life. Maybe you would say, God does get it. Here's a litmus test. What do you give your lives to and what do you give your body to? Those are the two examples that Paul gives in Romans 1. Rather than saying, oh, I know how to answer this question, look at your life and say, what do I worship? Who gets my trump card? Is it me? Is it culture? Is it my feelings or my guilt or my thoughts? Or is it God? That's your litmus test. What you give your life to, what you give your body to, who you give your worship, to whom you give your worship, and to whom you give your body. Those are the two examples that Paul gives about you want to know who plays the trump card in your life? What do you dream about? What do you give your life towards pursuing? Who gets the trump card in your life? Jesus says, give to God that which is God's. Give to God that which bears his image. That's your role. That's your job. You don't worry about Caesar. You don't worry about the government. You don't worry about culture. You don't worry about these political arguments. You don't worry about all the nuances of your finances and budget. The number one thing that you worry about, where's God's image? That belongs to him. You give to God what is God's. So the question this morning is, who gets the trump card in your life? Who gets to play the role of the spade that no matter what other hand is dealt, it will always trump? You can ask that question in two ways. One is, what's the evidence of my life? What do I give my life to and my body to as a representation of who gets priority? So you can ask it, how am I doing with that? Or you can ask, how will I do with it in the future? What decision will you make today that says, this is who I give the trump card to in my life. This is who has the authority to say, this is what I do and this is what I don't do. Who gets to play that role for you? Who's going to play the trump card in your life? Because in the end, that'll let you know who really is your God. the God of your desires, the God of society, or the God of the Bible. Will you pray with me?